Welcome to the Regista Room, the podcast where soccer goes off field. Here's your host, Paul Varian. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Regista Room, where amateur soccer goes off field. And hopefully, welcome back to many of you who've already tuned into our first episode, which focused on the theme of mindset. If you haven't already checked it out, make sure you do after you've listened to this podcast. Two great interviews with Olympic gold medalist Roa Adam Creek and Rob Gillis, president of Nova Scotia's own United DFC, there for you to enjoy. So, the big news since I spoke to you last been the release of the first of my new sport business e-tutorial series on capitalistlearning.com. So, this is the first of a series of eight e-tutorials that are designed for you to get access to the quality sport leadership professional development you need remotely online. So these tutorials are accessible to you on demand when you want and where you want. I'll be releasing a new e-tutorial every month at the top of the month. And we'll be aligning the content here in the register room as much as possible to what's delivered in these e-tutorials. So if you haven't already, check out the first one, which is on the fundamentals of sport governance at capitalistlearning.com. Don't forget to subscribe there too. And you can view the free trailer to get a sense of what it's all about and then rent the e-tutorial for a week to watch as often as you like during the week for just $39.99. So, on to our first theme, or our theme, should I say, for this episode of The Register Room, which is innovation. Now, a few thoughts on innovation before we bring in our guests. Truth be told, I don't think innovation is something I'd say amateur soccer has embraced well in the past, and there are many reasons for this. Firstly, I think the rules-based culture that dominates organized sports at large means organizations or individuals aren't really encouraged to innovate, nor are they rewarded for it. Combine that with limited resources that exist in amateur sport, and it creates you know, prohibitive risk and a lack of ownership many people sitting on the boards of traditional not-for-profit amateur soccer organizations feel exists too. And you'll find people are generally happy on this to take the safe path well-traveled by rather than face the uncomfortable risk that innovation brings. The risk is simply too high in most people's minds, and they often don't feel they have permission to make these bold, courageous calls anyway if they're sitting on the board of directors of one of these organizations for a relatively short period of time. As such, innovation and disruption in the system has traditionally and often occurred by those running their own private soccer academies or renegades outside the system where the rules simply don't apply to them anyway. But the last two years have been different. Innovation has leapt to the forefront of amateur soccer management because during this pandemic time, soccer organizations have had to pivot, flip, dug, weave, dodge, call it what you like, from the incessant barrage of change and uncertainty that the pandemic has continued to throw at us. And in many cases, there's been no choice in this. It's been a case of either innovate or shut up shop. Watching this unfold from the outside looking in, as us consultants tend to do, something's become apparent to me. Those amateur soccer organizations that have chosen to innovate and change quickly have fared best during these times. Those that have not often have remained closed, waiting for the world to return back to normal. But here's the problem. It's becoming more and more clear 
that the normal of 2019 simply ain't coming back. Whether it's residual health and safety protocols or a new era in what a workplace looks like that we've been flung into, it doesn't feel like we're going to ever head back to 2019. Why not? Well, look carefully. It's not because we ultimately aren't able to return to the life of 2019. It's actually more, I believe, because we don't want to. Yes, I said it, and it sounds odd. But this pandemic's actually created new opportunity and pushed organizations to try new things, innovate, and take risks that they wouldn't previously have had the courage nor permission to do. The outcome? A whole load of things that have actually made the amateur soccer system better off in the long run because some organizations took the bull by the horns and innovated in those times of adversity. Well, what things I hear some of you cry? Well, some of my guests on this episode of The Reduced Room will outline some shortly. But leaving those points aside, just think about how we've innovated our workplace to avoid costly and unnecessary office space. Or how we've moved people, particularly our volunteers, along to adopt technology more openly and readily. Or how we've moved to strengthen our relationship with our community partners, if we are indeed community-based amateur soccer organisations. Or how we've built better management of risk and crisis into our systems of governance, with vastly strengthened executive leadership that can do way more than simply manage sport programmes. Or, fundamentally, and at the very least, how we've been able to show how important amateur soccer is to us all, in particular our youth, and how this extends beyond their physical well-being to their mental health. And before you tell me, yeah, we knew all of that before, Paul, I'd suggest that most of that knowledge was anecdotal. The pandemic has given world experts on youth mental health, like the excellent Professor Tracy Varencourt in Ottawa, Canada, the opportunity to move the link between sports and mental health from anecdotal rhetoric to evidence-based scientific fact. That in of itself is a quantum leap in terms of validation of the value of sport in the broader sense, but especially for soccer, given its broad societal appeal and global reach. Yes, this pandemic has been hell, particularly in some jurisdictions that have had rougher, longer-lasting public health restrictions than others. But there have been benefits, as I've outlined, and these benefits would simply not have occurred without the power of innovation that some had the courage to unleash. When we return, I'll be chatting with three fantastic North American soccer club leaders about how they've innovated their club's operations both during the pandemic and as we emerge from it. When we return on the Regista Room, where amateur soccer goes off field. Are you an amateur sport leader looking for quality professional development? If so, your search is over. Introducing Capitalist Consulting's new sport business tutorial series. We'll teach you what you need to do to run your club better. These tutorials target the key areas of sport business. Governance, risk, planning, marketing, technical oversight, sponsorship, and modern volunteerism. Access and enjoy these tutorials when you want and where you want. Go to capitaslearning.com and get learning with me today. Do you have a story to tell? The Regista Room is built on real-world stories and experiences from amateur soccer clubs everywhere that we can explore, discuss, and learn from. Have you innovated a solution to a problem, challenged the norm, tried something different, thought outside the box, or taken a risk, and it's paid off? 
If so, we want to hear from you on the Regista Room. Contact us today with your story at content at registaroom.com and let's better the game with our shared soccer experiences. Welcome back to the Regista Room where amateur soccer goes off field. Paul Varian here, your host. As I mentioned before the break, today in the Regista Room, we're exploring the theme of innovation, particularly as it pertains to the pandemic that we've all been enduring. So let's move now to our first guest to see how amateur soccer clubs out there are actually managing this. The city of Waterloo is a fast-growing satellite community in the tech belt outside Toronto, Canada. Prosperous and growing with many young families moving out of the Toronto area, the community thirsts for quality community sport programming, particularly for its youth. And the local soccer club there, Waterloo Minor Soccer Club, has impressively met this demand and has grown in recent years to now boast an enrollment of over 4,000 youth players, boys and girls, offering a range of soccer programs from recreational to competitive. Now, like all soccer clubs, the club was forced to shut down in March 2020 when the pandemic hit. But rather than waiting for the pandemic to blow through, the club decided to innovate and find a way to remain connected and of value to its players and membership throughout. The club's executive director, Paul Burns, led this charge. A veteran in amateur soccer club leadership, Paul's also worked for Ontario Soccer, the region's provincial governing body, and had a strong sense of what soccer needed to attempt to bring during this unprecedented pandemic lockdown. And he joins me today in the Regista Room to talk about these times and what Waterloo Minor Soccer did to innovate around them. Paul Burns, Waterloo Minor Soccer Club, welcome to the Regista Room, my friend. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. And I think, Paul, it was probably about a year ago that we spoke last. In the height of the pandemic, and we were talking about what life was like for you and for your organization as you and every other sports club out there had to navigate their way through it. And you said something to me that stayed with me ever since. And that was that you were just really taking this as an opportunity to try some new things. And there are some things that worked, some things that didn't work, some things you might consider retaining. And I was really intrigued by that because, A, I think that was a very positive approach to to take to a very difficult situation. Um, And also really curious to know if that actually, you know, translated into innovations and new things that you tried that you are looking at continuing with at the club. So I guess my first question is, you know, how how did you get to that idea that you were just going to try some new things in an environment where you were worried, I'm sure, about just the future of the organization and people's jobs and and other things that a year on from the here, here that you 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 have decided you think you're going to keep the club in a post-pandemic environment? We were forced into you know, being open to change. When we're going through the, the pandemic and, and the closures and and basically no soccer, we had to think differently. We had to think, how do we keep players engaged? How do we keep coaches engaged? How do we keep them thinking about the game? And obviously they can't be on the field together. So what can we do to, you know, keep them together and, um, like many other clubs, we we had Zoom um, training sessions and and they went well for the first, I would say, three, maybe four months. And then, you know, kids get bored of that, right? They're not engaging with each other. So we said, okay, well, what else can we do that maybe isn't so instructional that um, 
the kids can interact. And we started thinking about, well, you know, the kids like to be social. So let's create some social events. It still may be online, but at least it's, it's events. And um, we started doing some viewing parties. So we, we'd pick a, whether, you know, a big Champions League game or a big, big game in the Premier League. And we would have events where teams can join together, watch the game together and talk. Talk about the game. Maybe talk about a player. Um, we do some prizing as well, right? So maybe we'd have some questions during the game and ask players about something. It might be tactical. It just might be fun. We got a lot of really positive response about that. And we also noticed that Canadian kids weren't watching soccer. They might play it on the weekends, but very few of them actually sat and watched the game. And that was a bit eye-opening for us, learning or learning more about the soccer culture and the soccer culture in Canada where they are playing it, but they're not necessarily watching it or really engrossing themselves in, in the game. So that was one that, that went really well. Uh, I believe we're going to do more of it once we're um, able to be in person and have more like viewing parties and having the players together and, and you know, really making that the game interactive for them and getting them thinking about the game while they're not on the field. That's really fascinating because, you know, you, when you talk about, and I think it's probably more of a North American th cultural thing than a European thing, but the idea mm. of a youth sports club on this side of the Atlantic, it's really a, it's really a sports program. It's almost commoditized a bit, isn't it? Particularly yeah. in big clubs. Whereas what you seem to have done very well, which is when your soccer's removed, you've replaced the sport with a community value add. Yeah, definitely. And that's really what we're trying to build, you know, at the club is, is that community and, and culture of, of the game, really getting them thinking about the game a, a lot more than just at training. One other thing we did, once we did start to get playing a low, it was a, um, in a limited capacity in our recreational side was we live streamed our recreational games. We, we did that um, out of necessity in the sense that parents could not be in the building um, because of COVID restrictions, but it still allowed them to watch their child and you know, know they're safe, but see them participating and still get that feeling of, you know, I've, I've seen my child play this week and it, it's just what parents are used to doing. You know, they, they go watch the kid play soccer and I, it was very well received. Um, we had, you know, a lot of views every day or every time we had the games on more than likely we'll continue to do it because now we can offer it to the grandparents who might be yes. across the country. Yes. And now, you know, they can, now it's not as if, you know, the production level is not, you know, what you're used to on, on cable TV. No nine but, camera operation going on there, Paul. No, no, no but <laughs> it, it, it's something right. And, and again, it, it allows, you know, the grandparents to say, I saw you play soccer today. Yes. And, you know, it was, um, they really enjoyed that. And I think the parents really liked that touch because, because they're so used to being with them, with their child at soccer, you know, they feel like they need to be there to protect them, to cheer them on and, and that sort of thing. Um, it, it gave them a comfort level. They really enjoyed that. And yeah. I'm interested to know, just, just to go back to the, to, to the, the viewing, the viewing parties, how did your coaches react to that? Because I know a lot of coaches really encourage their their young players to watch 
to watch soccer for obvious reasons, and so do match officials, yeah. I should say. Yeah. Um, did they embrace that? I mean, or did they struggle with sort of a different role that they would be now playing? They really got on board. Again, it's we're, we're trying to be that little bit different, offer them something that's a little bit new, and it's not always about, um, you know, X's and O's. Moving on to like um, how you as an organization, even you as a sport leader, Paul, have have managed your way through this. Because I've spent most of the, well, all of the pandemic, quite frankly, um, talking to a lot of people like yourself. And in some cases, watching them get ground down further and further. And and some of that is just the, the enormous stress of having to manage an operation in such times of uncertainty. But other parts of it was just the complete, you know, being sent back to square one over and over again, having to re-budget and re-plan and open a program and close a program and and the exhaustion of that and not getting the gratification of seeing any soccer, which is probably why, you know, people like you want to lead an organization like Waterloo Minor Soccer Club in the first place. How have you how have you coped with that the, the last 18 months um, in that regard? It has been difficult. There's been definitely ups and downs. But we also have to keep in mind that we have a purpose, and the, the purpose is to provide a safe, fun soccer program uh, for kids in Waterloo. But we've always maintained a, a positive mindset as a group to provide soccer in the best way we can. And, and sometimes we did have to go just down to basics, mm. say, you know, the mon- number one thing is get them on the field. So how can we do right. And it might not be their usual three times a week. It might have been once a week, but at least we're we're doing something. And um, the best thing I think we've we've seen is when we first came out of the the first long lockdown, it's the smiles uh, and 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 the chatter on the field because they hadn't seen each other in so long. You, you mentioned, Paul, just off air before we came on and I asked you how you're doing, and you said, well, the kids were playing. <laughs> yes. And and do you sort of, you know, getting back to this idea of how you manage your way through the, the almost hopelessness of this at times, I'm sure it felt, is that how you manage it? You just simplify it and get down to the basics about what we're there to do and why that is good and just try and block out all those variables and questions and uncertainties and just keep it singly focused on what you can control is that how you deal with things um yeah a lot of times i do and sometimes we just have to you know put it down to the 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 simplest form of you know we're here to provide a soccer program at the very core of it we want and we need those players to be on the field and as long as we're providing that for them in a of course a safe environment and a fun environment yeah then ultimately we we've done our job have you thought about what is the main thing you've learned over the last 18 months, you, you yourself personally and as a club? Yeah, um, as a club, the, the one big thing that's always come up with just about every club or it, even every business during the pandemic is, is finances. It's really important to be able to um, be sustainable in, in that area, to have that cushion, if you say, that if something does happen like this again, you know, it's, it's not complete shutdown. And that is something that the, the club has been very good at, even before my time, and something the board is very, very diligent on and, and, and very supportive in. But it's also having a, uh, a supportive board. And we really do have that. They did not panic. They thought things through. We had long, long discussions about 
you know, staffing and, and obviously programming and, and, and think about what we're going to do during the closures and how we're going to reopen. I think great leaders just see opportunities. Poor leaders, you know, when they're put in this situation, just see opportunities to fail. But clearly you're, you've seen this as an opportunity to test your leadership or add different dimensions to it, which is, which is great for you and credit to you. It's interesting you mentioned organizationally, you know, you mentioned governance, good governance, good board leadership and good, a strong balance sheet. As you know, in, in, in my book, Don't Blame the Soccer Parents, we devote a couple of chapters to those very areas. And this, is, this book was written before COVID because at the end of the day, you know, they may not be sexy topics. They may not be as exciting as winning a cup final, but they are absolutely essential for sustainability of your club as a going concern. And I've said to people all along, what would you like, a cheaper fee or no club at all? I'm hoping, you know, a silver lining in this crisis is that it has shown many clubs the importance of man- the importance of managing financial risk and that if you're saving some reserves, you're not being greedy, you're, you're just being prudent, right? Thanks so much, uh, Paul. Paul Burns, uh, Executive Director of Waterloo Minor Soccer. Thanks for joining us on the Register Room. Thanks very much, Paul. Enjoyed the chat. Hey, amateur soccer club leaders. Are you looking for a complete reference on how to run a great amateur soccer club, but all you can find are books on how to coach kids? Introducing Amazon's number one bestseller, Don't Blame Your Soccer Parents, your complete guide on how to run a successful amateur soccer club covering everything from managing your boardroom to overseeing your director of coaching or raising corporate sponsorship. Based on real-world experiences from internationally renowned sports consultant and professional speaker Paul Berry, Don't Blame the Soccer Parents rolls its sleeves up and tackles all the hands-on club management issues you need to master. Governance, planning, staffing, volunteers, finance, technical oversight, marketing, evaluation, and more. You'll find it all in the most comprehensive soccer club management reference on the market today. Pick up your copy on the Amazon platform or at don'tblamethesoccerparents.com today. Imagine not having the chance to play sports as a kid. Imagine not having those memories, those experiences. Imagine your childhood without them. If I wasn't able to play, I would miss my friends. I will miss being active and the chance of being competitive. Basketball has taught me how to work as a team, how to communicate, and how to adapt to any situation. My goal is to play for Team Canada and make it to the WNBA. The skills kids learn through sports are carried with them throughout their lives. But all across Canada, kids are being left on the sidelines because they don't have the resources to play. We owe all kids a chance to experience everything that sport has to offer. Help unleash the full potential in every child. Visit kidsport.ca so all kids can play. Got a soccer business question you want Paul Varian to tackle on the Regista Room? Send it to us now at questions at registaroom.com. My second guest today is from an amateur soccer club that's taken innovation way further than most have dared to go, and indeed further than some feel it should go. Seacoast United is a hugely successful amateur soccer club operating in New Hampshire, United States. Aside from running soccer programs, Seacoast also offer lacrosse, baseball, softball, and field hockey, and run a number of sports facilities serving various communities across the state of New Hampshire. 
Recently, the club has decided to embrace the technology that's captivating youth around the world and launch an e-sports program, adding it to their conventional sport mix. The innovation proved pivotal during the lockdown periods of the pandemic. I caught up with Seacoast United's Sales and Direct Sales and Sponsorship Director James Peterson to discuss the bold innovation. Have a listen. James, welcome to the Register Room. Hey Paul, how you doing? Uh, really appreciate you, you know, extending this invite. So can we just start by asking what made you decide to actually go ahead and launch an esports program when so many people were just talking about it or even criticizing it in some cases? If anyone thinks that what we what we've gone through, what we're still going through, and we're just going to revert back to, to normal proceedings. Well, they're wrong. You know, the, you know, these interactions with video and working in a hybrid model remotely, et cetera, that's, that's just going to be part and parcel of life moving forward. It, 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 things are evolving as we're speaking um, in terms of how people go about their daily lives. We, we believe that esports is something that is, is here to stay. Um, and again, it aligns with what we try to do in, ter- in terms of providing opportunities for, for people of all ages, all abilities. And um, yeah, when, when there was an opportunity last year to, to really look at how we went about, you know, integrating that with our, with our program, we jumped at the chance. We haven't had any of our families that have, you know, uh, come back to us in a negative, from a negative perspective or kind yeah. of balked at what we're doing. Again, I think it. I think it helps that we're a multi-sport club, so at least people within our area know um, what what we're all about, what our mission is uh, as an organization. So I think that lended itself to, you know, I, I would imagine the average person goes, "Okay, Seacoast United do is, is doing esports." Well, one, <laughs> the number one question is, "What's esports?" Yeah, and then and then two. Well, they do other sports, so yeah, it's just something else that they're providing. Um, but I thought we did a really good job of how we 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 put it out there because we we put together like nothing elaborate. We put a put a little survey together and sent it out to our families and said, "Listen, this is something that we're looking to do as an organization. We we you know we we, we fully." We're fully aware that your child is probably playing games, computer games, what have you, in, in some capacity. But if we're able to do something where putting into place the, the the core values that we're doing with our other traditional sports, it's just through the medium of esports, really promoting that 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 whole notion of teamwork, respect. You know, because esports outside of that is probably like the wild, wild west. You don't know yeah. what your kids are doing half the time. So if we can put that in a controlled environment and it's aligning with all these ethos that we have, is that something you'd be interested in? Um, because you know, we we think this is a this is a genuine opportunity for your child to to take a hobby um, and 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 put it put it put it in an area where they you know they can they can develop. Um, and they can, you know, they can have fun uh, in, a, in a safe and controlled environment. We would, to, to say that it's been a success would be a massive understatement. So we, we looked at it and t- so, um, you know, we did some stuff in the spring. We did an exhibition game with a local community college, Great Bay Community College, who has, a, has an esports club. So they're, they're 18 and 19 year olds were competing against our 12, 13 and 14 year olds. And by the way, our 12, 13, 14-year-olds were going toe-to-toe with them. 
So in no other sport would that ever happen, but it happens in e-sport because again, it's, 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 you're taking that physical um, element where, you know, if I'm five foot going up against a six foot eight person, I've got no chance, but it's irrelevant when you're playing in, 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 in that uh, environment. So that was really cool. Um, the other thing, um, you know, that we're really looking at now is this whole notion again of, you know, regardless of your age or ability, you know, that you have the ability, you have the, the access to esports. So we've had some really cool conversations with Special Olympics about how do we, because they're already looking at it as well. It's like, how do we, how do we provide this for your athletes yeah. um, that might be physically disabled? And um, so again, that, that's, that's stuff that we didn't even think about. Um, that's just kind of come through over the last couple of months. And I think that's a, that's a great testament to that, to that specific sport that you, because you're not confined by these physical constraints in some respects, the, the opportunities are, are endless. Yeah. But you know, I charge that you wouldn't have those opportunities unless you've taken the first step into the space. So one leads to the other, right? You just builds out. But what I'm hearing, James, just to summarize a few very important themes around what I'm hearing through what you're saying, firstly, is just a culture of innovation at your organization. And, and through COVID, I mean, that became so important. It was the organizations that could think freely, that could pivot and move and be nimble in all, all areas across the operation, but also just, just think outside the box and innovate in terms of what a sports club could be, because we could be quite rigid thinking traditionally in what, you know, this is soccer and this is field hockey and this is lacrosse, and, and that's the way it should be. So it seems you're not afraid to think freely and to back those ideas. And we could probably have an old other podcast on the culture and your <laughs> staff and how you're doing that. But the other thing just occurred to me, we're scared about losing kids to esports. But I'm sure you've picked up kids who want to now get involved in conventional sports through esports programs. I'm sure there's a bit of backwash the other way. And the final piece you, you mentioned, which I think is really important, is, and listeners need to understand this, especially those who are skeptical of this, you're not stopping this esports train, folks. It is so powerful. And your kids are there if you're running youth sports programs. They're already there. So but James mentioned the idea of molding behavior, that you, if they're going to be involved in this, let's have them involved in it in a way that we can control their behavior, their thinking, their development, their ethos, their values around what we do for conventional sports and bring it together under the banner of, of great human development rather than, no, we don't believe in this. It's useless. It's not sports. It's taking kids away from the, from the field of play or whatever it might be. So Great free thinking advice there, James. You know, once again, thanks for the second time coming on to the Regista Room. It's been tremendous speaking to you. Once again, listeners, seacoastunited.com to see the range of activities, both on field uh, in terms of sporting programs, off field as well in terms of community development, community value adding stuff that the club is doing. They really are, I think, market leaders in so many areas. James Peterson, Marketing Sales and Advertising Director, Seacoast United. Thanks once again for joining us on the Register Room. Thank you, Paul. Need help managing your amateur sport organization but don't know where to turn? Look no further than Capitus Consulting, your dependable partner to help you through the challenges and issues you routinely face in and around your sport boardroom. At Capitus Consulting, we're different. We've directly managed amateur sport organizations from community club to national governing body. We understand your side of the fence because we've been there ourselves. We know from experience what makes sport organizations successful and where they go wrong. 
Reach out to us today at capitusconsulting.ca and let's start building your sport business today. Want to tell us what you think of the show and things we could do to make it better? Tell us now at comments at registaroom.com. Welcome back to the Register Room, the podcast where amateur soccer goes off field. Your host, Paul Varian, delighted to have you with me today. My final guest today shows how the innovation we've learned during the pandemic can benefit us so well if we make the effort to institutionalize it into our organization's culture and systems of governance and operations. Pickering Soccer Club is a large amateur soccer club located in Toronto, Canada's eastern suburbs. Eight years ago, the club invested in a full-size indoor soccer facility, vastly increasing their programming capability during the winter months. Oh, and a quick note here to register roommates in Florida or Texas or California, we get a fair bit of snow up here in Canada in winter. Without large sports facilities that are indoor, programming is heavily compromised for extended periods of the year. So these facilities are really, really important to not only Canada, but of course, communities in northern states of the US as well. So in mid-January of this year, 2022, the Greater Toronto area was stuck with one of the was structured, I say, with one of the worst snow blizzards it's seen at that time of the year ever. Over 36 centimeters of snow fell in a single day, making it the largest single-day snow event the city's ever seen in January since records began. And this had a devastating impact on amateur soccer clubs in the region who ran indoor soccer dome facilities such as Pickering Soccer Club. Here's the club's executive director, Matt Greenwood, to explain what happened and how the club had to move quickly to deal with it with new innovation capabilities they built over the previous two pandemic-dominated years. Matt Greenwood, Executive Director of Pickering Soccer Club. Welcome to the Register Room, my friend. Thank you very much, Paul. Great to uh, great to be here. Yeah, well, I'd love to have you on in more easy circumstances, Matt. But uh, yeah, obviously, we, uh, we're talking today on the Register Room about innovation. And a lot of the discussion on innovation has been about COVID-related innovation. It's been forced on us the last couple of years. But you had a situation a few weeks ago where you had to innovate whether you liked it or not related to this great Canadian weather we have. Obviously, a huge blizzard came in. I think it was 36 centimetres overnight. It was a record, I think, for Toronto or close to. Um, right. Tell us a little, bit what, a little bit about what happened, particularly in relation to your large indoor dome facility. Uh, yeah, thanks, Paul. It was certainly a uh, almost a once-in-a-lifetime, certainly a, a once-in-a-decade blizzard that came through uh, Ontario and did a, a lot of damage to um, probably 17 or 18 domes across across Ontario, one of them being ours. Uh, usually our dome is uh, is fantastic in this sort of weather. Uh, and typically we have a, a landscaping crew that would come down, they'd clear the roadways around the dome. Um, and then usually within three or four hours, the amount of snow that is on the roof sheds and they have to come back and do that again. Um, this time that didn't happen. That that snow and cold came in so quickly. It was, you know, it was blowing in sideways. Uh, it started to stick and build up on the west end of our dome. Uh, and the weight of that ultimately uh, blew out the southwest corner. Uh, and our contractors advised us that the safest thing, rather than to let it just flap around in the wind and see what happened next, would be to shut off our, our fan and our backup fan and just let the uh, let the dome come down under some sort of control. Um, the nature of our facility is that it's a full-sized um soccer field we have some great space around the edges for sort of warm up behind the main goals and then we also have a four lane running track on the far side of the dome 
So uh, with the dividing curtains uh, between each of those, uh, the mini fields that we have, we have four quarter fields. Um, as the dome came down, unfortunately, uh, those blue dividing posts went straight through the uh, the roof uh, of the dome, which we knew was a inevitable uh, <laughs> impact of this. Uh, so right now we're looking at the repair of those six holes, um, the um, fix of that southwest corner where it blew out, uh, and then we have a pretty unique uh, revolving door um, setup when you come into our facility. So you come from a brick built building through the revolving doors, or we have an accessible person entrance in the middle, and then into the dome. Uh, and as the dome came down, it actually stayed attached to the revolving doors and pulled them away from the the, the brick built structure. Um, so the first thing we're doing now, we've you know the dust or the snow has settled, so to speak. Um, the contractors are in today, and their first phase is detaching that revolving door, sticking it on the back of a, a flatbed truck, and taking it to a manufacturer to hopefully repair it, retrieve it, and then get it back to us within the next month or so. This is a. I've been inside this facility. Obviously, it's fantastic indoor facility. It's relatively new, right? It's been last ten years. It went up. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Twenty fourteen. So- and at this time of year, I mean, it's really an essential piece of your facility-based through its program, right? How have you managed to deal with this being suddenly taken out of play and keep the programs going, or have you simply not been able to? Uh, for our club programs, uh, our technical staff um, and our recreational administrator jumped really quickly onto um, reorganising this uh, and finding available space where we could across um, the city of Pickering, Durham region, um, and then e- even sort of extending out into other parts of the greater Toronto area. So I would estimate that about 80 or 85% of our programming that we would normally be running as a club um, can still continue, not always in the most ideal of settings, you know, from, from the beautiful turf field that we have here to a, a gymnasium, hardcore floor. It's, a good opportunity for some of these teams to maybe experience futsal for for the first time, um, but at least keeping them active. So tell us how you went through that uh, decision-making process and, and I guess, um, designation of authority, because obviously in times of crisis, you know, moving uh, speed of thought into speed of action becomes really paramount. Um, It really separated into a a sort of a competitive high performance and then a recreational management sort of structure um so between uh dave benning and holly babbitt our director of soccer operations and grassroots director they knew what other facilities were out there that they believed would be possible to uh, to rent uh, and that would meet the needs of, of that particular group of player um and then on the recreational side because that number is um significantly more we're probably looking at about eight or nine to nine hundred players on the recreational side um that needed to be uh, a closer relationship, working relationship with the city uh, and the facilities that they have that they could get us into. The city of Pickering were fantastic. They have just refurbished their recreation centre uh, and held off on any other bookings so they could give us some priority to, to keep things running. Uh, they also identified a couple of community centres uh, and they also engaged their economic development uh, department who are aware of any kind of unused um, warehouse space, uh, big box store space that, that might have been a, a potential um, avenue for us. So we looked at everything. Nothing was off the table. Um, and thankfully, as I said, we've got about 85% of that uh, in place in a variety. And it, it's great. You know, people, I think, will now appreciate how wonderful the facility is and the fact that they can just come in and, and walk and know the Pickering Soccer Centre inside out. 
now they're having to shift somewhere different for a little while, you know, it might uh, open their eyes a little bit to what else is out there. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, I mean, what just listening to you talk, Matt, you're able to obviously, you know, sort of mobilize your management team very quickly. And there was a lot of very sharp and quick thinking there that was great. But it sounds to me like you didn't have to get bogged down in bringing this to your board or that, you know, that there, there's a level of, of executive authority that's given to your team that enabled you to put this into play pretty quickly. There is, there is. Uh, I think over the past two years and kind of, you know, as I think we're all hoping this is coming out of the pandemic, um, we did build up a good relationship between the uh, the management staff and, and the board to the point where through that throughout the pandemic, we were meeting on a, on a weekly basis, really sometimes just to check in and see how, how each of us was doing. Um, sometimes just to, you know, bounce thoughts around about um, the, the pandemic numbers, infection rates, what we were kind of seeing and hearing um, from sort of all of our different sources and experiences. Uh, and sort of coming out of the pandemic, I thought, I think that built up um, a level of not respect, because I think that was already there, but a kind of an understanding that, you know, we as a staff know what we're doing. Um, let us go out there and, and identify and book up these facilities uh, and, and keep things moving. As, you know, as we've done multiple times, it's that good old word pivot. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's been a, uh, a week to week, sometimes it might even be a day to day pivot, um, but needing to be able to adjust and make those decisions quickly, as you said, without getting too bogged down in um, sort of board approvals or engagements and lengthy meetings, um, has really helped us come through this. In a, in a, other than the dome being as flat as a pancake, come through this in a in a really good position. There's kind of a board experience that they know programs, they know soccer programs, they know how and, and what a soccer club should look like and how it should be run. There were so many new things that got thrown at us with this, this pandemic um, that unless you were in this full time and up to your neck in it, um, it was very hard to keep up with, you know, the, the changes in restrictions at the federal or provincial level or even at the regional level. So living and breathing every day and then being able to adjust, being able to provide that advice or input back to the board so they were aware of how quickly things are changing that we are a step ahead or at least on top of it um and then being able to process that into some communication pieces that we could then share with our membership and and i love what you've actually done with this current crisis is you know you've got a hashtag i think it's called raise the hashtag raise the roof isn't it and you're you're Mm -hmm. sort of telling the story and trying to looks like you're trying to make it into sort of a a club bonding experience, you know, what is it they say, never let a good crisis go to waste. And 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 you're sort of telling the story and showing the, the rigor of the club at the same time as obviously dealing with the, with the crisis. That's obviously something you're, you're, you're consciously doing and trying to drive, right? It, it is for, from a number of different angles. One to, uh, to keep the, again, keep the membership engaged and reassured that, you know, this isn't the end of the world. We thought the last two years was the end of the world. So we will get through this, uh, again, we want them to be informed of, of the progress, um, but also it's um, it, it's a catalogue. It's a way of kind of putting on record what we've done and how we've done it. And heaven forbid this were ever to happen again, we've got all of that on on fire. Help us improve further down the line. Yeah, and and I wonder whether you know sometimes, particularly with very big clubs like you run there, where there's thousands of participants, and there's a risk the club can become almost commoditized at times, isn't there? And and these stories actually trying to they actually build heritage into your club. Like, you know, you hope that 10 years from now people will be like, Oh, do you remember when the, the snow brought down the dome and what we did then as a club to get by? And these little stories build build a club, I think, beyond just simply being a, a collection of programs. 
You're absolutely right. It's uh, we, we want to see the, the membership as more than just a, a customer or a consumer. Um, and if we, we have ways to do that like this and sort of almost break down those barriers, uh, we did a, um, a frontline workers appreciation tour, geez, back in May of 2020. It seems like ages ago now. Uh, but when we were first able to actually sort of get outdoors um, and did a convoy around the local hospital, the fire engine, the fire station, the EMS crews, uh, we just kind of honked horns and let people know that we were, were appreciative of them. Um, and it's, it's simple little things like that that as, as clubs we can do. doesn't really cost anything at all and, and helps engage. and makes people feel like they're, yeah, more than just a, a customer or a consumer. I should say, I'm just glad nobody was hurt in this instance, that the dome didn't come down with anyone inside and that everyone's safe and well. And um, and it seems like you're managing another very difficult situation with, with complete distinction. So... Uh, so we wish you all the best at Pickering Soccer Club. We hope your dome is back up as soon as possible and uh, everyone can enjoy what goes on inside there. As you say, in the meantime, they can remember what it was like for the rest of us as boys and girls growing up before they had this dome technology and you just did the best you can in gyms and so on. So not a bad yeah. idea for them to see that and see what a great dome they have there when they can get back in. But in the meantime, best of luck with the con con continued renovations and thanks for joining me on the register room today. Great stuff. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for uh, having me. And I look forward to uh, catching up in person soon. Take care. Very much so. Take care. So, three examples of how your peer amateur soccer clubs are impressively innovating their way through COVID-19 and beyond into the future. Although the pandemic has been hard, there has been a silver lining. And amateur soccer clubs' new ability to innovate is just one. Before we close this episode, there's one very important commonality across these organizations and others I've seen that are mastering innovation and making it the norm in their amateur soccer organizations that I want to highlight for you. And it is that of trust. Look at these organizations and the leadership in them. They are able to try new things, take risks, which is an inherent component of innovation, fail if necessary, and move quickly without having to run up a bureaucratic chain of command to ask for permission. I'm not saying amateur soccer organizations should be without checks and balances and authority levels, but the fundamental ingredient in all these organizations' success with innovation is the empowerment of executive management by boards of directors. So any board member register roommates listening to this, empower your management, trust their decision-making, and if you don't trust their decision-making, change them out and bring in people who you do. It's an essential element of a well-functioning board and your ability to get the best out of your management team. And register roommates listening to this who are in management. Take this idea and drive it throughout your organization. Drive trust and innovation hand in hand as the predominant culture in your people. Yes, there will be screw-ups. The odd person might even take advantage of it. But the benefits will greatly outweigh the downsides. Whether it's being able to trust someone to properly work from home or move quickly to reassign programs if a building collapses or to have the courage to try something completely new and untested, a culture of trust and innovation is one that everyone wants to be part of and gains from most. My name is Paul Varian. You're in the register room where amateur soccer goes off field. Thanks for joining me today. Until the next time, stay safe and well. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Regista Room, where amateur soccer goes off-field. Join us again for the next episode. Subscribe today at capituslearning.com or listen wherever you access your favorite podcasts.